If you will, turn to the book of Ezra again this morning. We spent last week uh, looking at the ministry of Ezra, admiring how he was just what God's people needed after their long years in exile, after many years without faithful teaching. Uh, God sent them a man, chapter 7, who was a scribe, skilled in the law of Moses and learned in the words of the commandment of the Lord. And Ezra, we read, did not become that way by accident, but because, chapter 7, verse 10, he had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to practice it and to teach his ordinances and statutes in Israel. He was a remarkable man, this Ezra, and he is an encouragement, I hope, and an example to every believer to study God's word ourselves, to practice what it says, and then to teach the scriptures to one another and to our children and to those who need a biblical word in season. And I found Ezra's example so encouraging that I would like to look at him again this morning, in fact, taking a closer look at one of the key episodes in his life. And so we will turn to chapter 9, and we will look at a portion of chapter 9 and a portion of chapter 10 after I pray. Father, thank you um, for this book, the whole book. God, thank you for this particular book of Ezra and how it points us to your ability to utterly redeem your people. So show us today your power, your kindness, your ability to utterly redeem your people. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we get to chapter 9, the people of God, you may remember, had returned from their long exile in Babylon and eventually Persia, and they had a great many reasons for rejoicing in chapters 1 through 8. The land had been restored to them, the temple had been rebuilt, the sacrifices were being offered once more on the altars in Jerusalem, and all seemed to be wonderful, except that when we come to the final two chapters of this book we were reminded that things weren't as well as they may have appeared initially. There are a great many reasons to thank the Lord. In many ways, we might say the house of God's people had been swept clean, and yet we're going to find in these chapters that there was still some dust in the attic, as it were, still some skeletons in the closet. And that's the situation we encounter, I said, uh, in chapter 9 and in chapter And so I'd like to read to you a portion from chapter 9 and then a couple of segments from chapter 10 as well. So let's begin with 9, 1 through 6. Now, when these things had been completed, namely the rebuilding of the temple and the rejoicing and so on, when these things had been completed, the princes approached me, Ezra, saying, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands according to their abomination." Those of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race is intermingled with the peoples of the lands. Indeed, the hands of the princes and the rulers have been foremost in this unfaithfulness. When I heard about this matter, I tore my garment and my robe, and pulled some of the hair from my head and my beard, and sat down appalled. 
Then everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel on account of the unfaithfulness of the exiles gathered to me, and I sat appalled until the evening offering. But at the evening offering, I arose from my humiliation, even with my garment and my robe torn, and I fell on my knees and stretched out my hands to the Lord my God. Chapter 10, verse 1. Now, while Ezra was praying and making confession, weeping and prostrating himself before the house of God, a very large assembly, men, women, and children, gathered to him from Israel, for the people wept bitterly. Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, one of the sons of Elam, said to Ezra, We have been unfaithful to our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land. Yet now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. So now let us make a covenant with our God to put away all the wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God and let it be done according to the law. Arise, for this matter is your responsibility, but we will be with you. Be courageous and act. Then Ezra rose and made the leading priests, the Levites, and all Israel take oath that they would do according to this proposal. So they took the oath. And then we find the outcome of the matter down in verses 18 and 19. Among the sons of the priests who had married foreign wives were found of the sons of Jeshua, the son of Josadak, and his brothers, Messiah, Eliezer, Jerib, and Gedaliah. They pledged to put away their wives, and being guilty, they offered a ram of the flock for their offense. I think one of the most striking things to me about this passage, the reason why I wanted to bring it to you this morning, is the way that it illustrates the continuity between the Old and the New Testaments. You may not immediately think of that as you read it, but that's a remarkable thing that we need to notice this morning. We may sometimes be tempted to read the two halves of the Bible almost as though they were two different books, but passages like this one help us to see that it's all one book. It's all one story that demonstrates that God has always had one purpose and one way for his people. And I want to show you this morning that in many ways, the events of Ezra chapters 9 and 10 could have happened in the New Testament, just as they happened here in the Old. They could happen in our day, just as they did then, in many striking ways. There's a great deal of continuity between Old and New. And just notice, first of all, the continuity of the Old and New Testaments when it comes to God's moral law. God's moral law. Sometimes, as I say, we may be tempted to think that the Old and the New are quite different. And we may even have heard people say or have said ourselves, well, you know, the Old Testament is a book of law, and the New Testament is all about grace. We may think that God had all these high and difficult standards in the first 39 books of the Bible, but then when we turn to the book of Matthew, all of those things have somehow been relaxed with the coming of Jesus. But it's not so. And I say to you that Ezra 9 and 10, I think, is a good reminder of that fact. Now, there's no question that this is a passage about God's law. The reason the princes approached Ezra in chapter 9, verse 1 The reason he sat down and wept and pulled out his hair in verse 3. The reason these men had eventually put away their wives, chapter 10, verse 19, and offered a ram of the flock for their, their offense. The reason for all these things was a breach of God's holy law. Specifically, Deuteronomy 7, 3, and 4 had commanded, 
the Israelites, you shall not intermarry with the nations which the Lord will clear away before you. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor shall you take their daughters for your sons, for they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. That was God's clear commandment to his people. Don't intermarry with the peoples of the land because they will turn your sons and daughters away to other gods. And the people in Ezra's day had trampled all over that commandment. Intermingling, we read, with the peoples of the lands, chapter 9, verse 2, and taking some of their daughters as wives for themselves and for their sons. Now, let's pause here and say that the issue with the foreign wives, we need to note carefully, was not about ethnicity. God was not teaching his people to be racist. The issue was that their foreignness in the Old Testament context meant not only that they were of a different family, a different tribe, a different nation, but the real issue was that they were of a different God. Their foreignness is code for their paganness, their ungodliness, the fact that they were idolaters and worshipers of false gods. And this was the reason for the commandment in Deuteronomy 7. It wasn't about ethnicity, but about the fact that the peoples of the land worship false gods. In fact, that's why God said, don't do it. He didn't say, don't marry with them because somehow their race is different from yours and that's wrong. No, the reason you don't marry these particular people is not because of their race, it's because of their gods. They will teach you and your sons to worship other gods. And so the Israelites were told, in essence, don't marry someone who doesn't worship your God. That's the root of the command. The principle, both in Deuteronomy 7 and in Ezra 9 and 10, is about marrying an unbeliever when you belong to to Christ. God's people should never do that. That's the clear teaching of the Old Testament. But I say there's continuity, isn't there, between old and new, and that's why this teaching sounds so familiar to us, even if we've never considered it in the book of Ezra, because we've heard it in the New Testament as well, haven't we? The New Testament sets the same standard for God's people, most notably in 2 Corinthians six fourteen, that famous verse, do not be yoked unequally, with unbelievers. That's what Paul said. Don't be tied up in marriage relationships with an unbeliever. He said the same thing in 1 Corinthians 7.29, that believers should marry only in the Lord. And that's a good word for all of you who are young or who are not so young, but still hope that you may have marriage in your future someday. If you're in Christ, you are one of his holy people, Ezra 9.2. And as such, you must reserve yourself in marriage for someone who is also holy to the Lord. You may marry, he says, but only in the Lord. But again, the main thing I want you to see is this bigger picture. Namely, that the issue of marriage is simply one example of the continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament. We're still governed by the same moral laws, the same moral standards as Ezra and his people. Some of the ceremonies have changed between old and new. Some of the civil structures have changed between old and new, but there's great continuity between the Old and New Testaments when it comes to God's moral standards for his people. God has not changed, and neither have his standards for his people. 
That's one continuity that we see between old and new. But in the second place, and really much more importantly, and this will carry us through the rest of our time now, I want you to see that there's continuity between the Testaments, not only when it comes to the law, but even more excitingly, when it comes to the gospel, the good news, the way of salvation. It's the same in both halves of the book. And that's where we'll spend the rest of our time, as I said this morning. And that's what excites me about this passage. There is continuity between the Old Testament and the New when it comes to the gospel. Just notice, what did Ezra counsel when the people of Judah realized their sin and their guilt? And how did the people themselves respond to their guilt? How did they deal with their God? How did they return to him? What hope did they have of forgiveness? Did they say, well, we're the people of the law, so if we'll just dot all of our I's and cross off all of our T's and everything will be fine? Was that their response? No. How did they respond when they found themselves guilty before the Lord? Well, according to chapter 10, verse 19, they responded the same way that we would have to respond and that we must respond and that we do respond and that we have responded when we have found ourselves in their shoes. They responded just like us. They did the same thing each of us must do when we are convicted of our sins. Namely, they clung to the same hope, the same response, the same way back to God that we call the gospel. They did the same thing that we do when we are confronted with our sins. And we see it clearly, I say, in verse 19, chapter 10. They pledged to put away their wives, and being guilty, they offered a ram of the flock for their offense. They put away their wives, and being guilty, they offered a ram of the flock for their offense. I call that verse the gospel according to Ezra because in it we see the same hope, the same way of forgiveness that we're so accustomed to reading about in the New Testament. Namely, we would say, if we were talking verse 19 in our own New Testament kind of terms, we would say they repented towards God and they placed their faith in the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Isn't that what they did? They repented towards God. They pledged to put away their wives. And they put their faith in the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. They offered a ram of the flock for their offense. All the same things that we know from the New Testament are present right here in Ezra 10, 19. Are they not? This is the gospel right here in the middle of this Old Testament book that perhaps is not so familiar to us. So don't be misled. There are not two ways of salvation in the Bible, and there never were. The idea that in the Old Testament people were saved from the wrath of God by keeping the Ten Commandments and by doing their best to follow all the rules has absolutely no support anywhere in the Bible. No. Ever since the fall of man in the Garden of Eden, ever since man became guilty, the message of salvation and the way of salvation has been precisely the same as it is today. Repentance toward God and faith in the Lamb of God slain for the sins of the world. And I say again, this is precisely what we find here in Ezra 10, 19. They pledged to put away their wives. Repentance, being guilty, they offered a ram of the flock for their offense. Faith. That's the gospel. 
It's written here in Old Testament language to be sure, but it's the same message you may remember that Paul preached to the elders in Ephesus, Acts 20, 21. Repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. It's the same message that Jesus himself preached when he came into the countryside preaching and being baptized by John. What did he say? The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Repentance and faith. I hope you find it thrilling to find this same message proclaimed so so clearly tucked away here in the book of Ezra. I find it thrilling. I hope you do as well. In fact, just as an aside, I hope you'll be all the more encouraged after today to read the Old Testament for yourself, not to shy away from it, to say to yourself, this is the same book with the same message and the same good news that I'm accustomed to finding in Matthew and Luke and Romans and so on. It's just dressed in a little different clothing. But at the root level, it's the same God and it's the same gospel. And this morning I want to preach to you that same gospel, that familiar gospel from this perhaps not so familiar portion of scripture, particularly from verse 19. And I want to do so under just two headings. Just two headings. And I've already told you what they are. First, note in verse 19 here that God calls us to repentance toward God. Repentance toward God. They pledged to put away their wives. Someone has said, I think rightly, that repent is the first word of the gospel. You have no gospel if you don't first call upon all men everywhere to repent. And that's the way we find it here, isn't it? The first word of the gospel here is repent. And the question is, what is repentance? We have an example of it here, but, but what is it that we're describing? Well, there's no verse of Scripture that you can turn to that will give you in a single verse or even in a single paragraph a Merriam-Webster-like definition of repentance where all the bases are covered in one place. What you have to do if you want a definition of repentance is look at all the different places where Scripture describes it or illustrates it and then put all that together to formulate a biblical definition. Let me just give you uh, a few folks who have done a good job at doing that. First, uh, Wayne Grudem. Some of you have seen his book, Systematic Theology. He takes all the evidence and defines repentance this way. Repentance is a heartfelt sorrow for sin, a renouncing of it, and a sincere commitment to forsake it and walk in obedience to Christ. A heartfelt sorrow for sin, a renouncing of it, and a sincere commitment to forsake it and to walk in obedience to Christ. The Westminster Confession, which would be good for all of you to have a copy of on your coffee table so that you could look it up. It's a wonderful compendium of theology. says this in a little more archaic language. Repentance unto life is a saving grace whereby a sinner out of a true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, doth with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it unto God with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. That may seem like a mouthful, but children in a time gone by, by the time they were at the age of 12, were accustomed to have that whole Westminster Catechism memorized. 
Then there's uh, the little yellow catechism that we use, my first book of questions and answers by Corinne McKenzie, intended for smaller children. It says it succinctly and clearly as well. What is repentance? Repentance is when I am truly sorry for my sin. I hate it. I want to stop doing it. I want to live to please God. I'm truly sorry for my sin. I hate it. I want to stop doing it. I want to live to please God. Three definitions, and in giving you those three, I may have made it more confusing for you as if, than if I'd given you none, but let me see if I can distill all those definitions down into just two main points. If you want to know what repentance is, there are two main things. First, repentance includes genuine sorrow for your sin. Grudem called it heartfelt sorrow for sin. The Westminster Confession called it grief and hatred of sin. Mackenzie calls it being truly sorry for my sin and hating it. Genuine sorrow for sin. And then secondly, repentance is also an endeavor to change. Again, Grudem, a commitment to forsake it. Westminster, full purpose of an endeavor after new obedience. Mackenzie, I want to stop doing it. I want to live to please God. Repentance is genuine sorrow for your sin, and it is an endeavor to change. Genuine sorrow for your sin, that you've grieved God, that you've broken His law. Isn't that what we've seen throughout these last two chapters of Ezra? The people we read in chapter 9, verse 4, trembled at the words of God on account of the unfaithfulness of the exiles. In chapter 10, verse 1, they wept bitterly. Note that well. Their repentance was not perfunctory. They were not simply trying to do what they needed to do to get on God's good side. No, they wept, and they did so bitterly. And they didn't weep, remember, because they were caught. They weren't caught. They came and admitted, we're messed up. They wept because of their unfaithfulness to God. They were, in the words of Mackenzie again, truly sorry for their sins. They hated them. And that's what true repentance always looks like. It's genuine sorrow. But it doesn't stop at genuine sorrow. You can be sorry for your sin and never do anything about it. And that's why repentance always goes on, true repentance, to say, I want to stop doing what I'm doing. I want to live to please God. Again, in the words of Grudem, repentance is a sincere commitment to forsake sin and walk in obedience to Christ. And I say again, that's what we see here, particularly in 10.19. They pledge to put away their wives. The Hebrew literally says they gave their hand to put away their wives. Just like we do when we stand in a court of law. We, We raise our right hand as if to say there is a solemnity to what I'm promising to do. They pledged to put away their wives. Now, notice this is a pledge. It's not a claim to perfection here. This is not a guarantee on their behalf that they will never struggle again with sin. And that's not what repentance ever is, because we know we'll never get it all right. Repentance is not perfection or even a guarantee of it but repentance is a want to I want to live to please God it is Grudem a sincere commitment to it is Westminster an endeavor after new obedience that's what repentance is make sure you have that clear in your mind repentance is not a promise to God I'll never sin again who can promise that 
But repentance is a sincere desire to change, a sincere desire not to go on the way we've been going, and a cry for his help in such a tall endeavor. And no one ever truly comes to God without this. Read all up and down the Bible, and you will never find anyone who truly comes to God asking him to forgive them, asking him to befriend them, asking him to prepare a home for them on high, and then adding a caveat, but now, Lord, you should know that I'm not going to be able to give up my addictions. I'm not going to be able to give up my sinful relationships, Lord. I mean, you know that. My pride, my selfishness. So thanks, God, for your understanding, and I'll see you in heaven. You never find anybody who comes back to God like that and actually is heard, do you? And perhaps none of us would say that to God out loud. But it is possible that we could harbor those thoughts in our hearts, isn't it? It is possible to want God's forgiveness, to want God's friendship. It's possible for us to want heaven, but inside to have no real intention at all of taking any real steps to stop gossiping or to stop complaining or to stop looking at pornography or to let go of long-held bitterness. No intention at all, perhaps, of dealing with our anger issues or ordering our relationships after biblical principles or using our money in biblical sacrificial ways instead of typical American ways. And the list could go on. It's possible to have no real interest in doing what God says do, but just to want God's blessings anyway. It's possible to have no real interest in being a friend of God while still wanting him to be a friend of ours. But it doesn't work that way, does it? It doesn't work that way in the Old Testament, and it doesn't work that way in the New. What good would it have done for the man in Ezra 9 and 10 to have wept and prayed over their sins, to have asked God to forgive them, and then to have gone right back home and had a cozy evening with their pagan wives and all their idols? No good at all, right? And that's the point in verse 19. They didn't just ask God to overlook their sin. They pledged to put it away. They pledged to put away their wives. And it's a simple biblical fact that everyone who comes to God comes on this same road of repentance. Perhaps this is one reason that Jesus said that the gate is narrow that leads to life. Because you have to come through it on your knees. Everyone who truly comes to God comes to him on his or her knees, repenting, grieving for sin, pledging to put it away as best as he can. We know we won't do it perfectly. We know we'll have to repent again tomorrow, tonight, this afternoon. We know that we'll never be perfect and we don't claim or promise God perfection. But when we come to him, we do have a genuine desire to quit our sins and to live for this Jesus who died for us. That's what happened in Ezra chapters 9 and 10. That's true repentance. Now, for each of us, the steps of repentance will look differently. For instance, and this is important to notice, in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul dealt with a similar issue of believers being married to unbelievers, and his counsel to them as to how to put away that sin is quite different than what Ezra counsels here in chapters 9 and 10. And you need to note that as you find yourself counseling others about this situation. But in both cases, whether Paul or Ezra, the bottom line is the same. They are both saying to the people, let's find out what's pleasing to the Lord. 
Let's find out what to do about our sins. Let's be sincere in our pledge to put them away and now from this point on to begin to live to please God. And depending on what your sin is, the steps will be different. But the root is always the same. There's only one way to come to God. In repentance. Is that the way you came? Is that the way you approached God? When you came to him, as many of you have done, asking him to forgive your sins, did you also pledge to put them away as best as you could? Was that your heart's desire? You may not have known to call it repentance. You perhaps didn't know how to put all that was in your heart into words yet. But the question is, did your heart grieve over your offenses against God? Did you desire, did you determine that you would put them away? I'm not asking, have you done it perfectly? But was that your pledge? Was that your desire when you came? I feel certain that for many of you, it really was. And it continues to be your desire to put away your sin. But we can't touch on the issue of repentance without pointing out that there's a major epidemic in the American church today of people who haven't done it that way. People who claim Christ, people who've gone through the waters of baptism, people whose names are on church rolls, people who say that they're going to heaven, but who have never had any real intention of putting away their sins. In some cases, they ask God to forgive them, and then they really rarely ever darken the door of the church because they don't want to grow. They have no interest in growing. And in other cases, they darken the door of the church, and they make it very dark for the pastor or any other leaders who ever choose to speak about sin because that's not what they're about. There's little evidence, perhaps, in their life of the fruit of the Spirit of being conformed to Jesus, and yet they call themselves Christians without having any evidence of repentance. And the question is, where do they get the idea that they're Christians? Who told them that they were in the kingdom? Who baptized them with no evidence of repentance? What church admitted them into membership? Those are hard questions, especially for those of us who are in my position, or Charles or Keith, as we lead. In many cases, the culprits are churches and pastors who don't preach repentance as we should, who don't call on people as Ezra did to put away their sins in order to come to God. And as I look at myself, I say to myself, I need to improve in this area to make sure that the gospel, the whole gospel is heard. Perhaps sometimes pastors, leaders, us as we're out witnessing to our friends, perhaps we have good intentions and we want to be able to say to people, simply believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And we should say that, shouldn't we? That's in the Bible. But the only way that we can say, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved in proper context is if we have first called upon people to repent. If we have helped them to see that their sins are an offense against God and that they simply cannot continue the way they're going. That we're not simply handing out get out of hell free cards, but that we're calling people back to the feet of God and you have to come there on your knees, on your face. No one ever truly comes to Jesus unless he sees how badly he needs Jesus. Until he sees the heinousness of his sin, until his heart is broken over it and he longs to put it away. That's when we come to Jesus. That's why both Paul and Jesus put repentance first when they preached. Repent and believe in the gospel. A person may grasp very quickly for a get-out-of-hell-free card without any sense of sin in his heart, but he'll never actually reach out for Jesus. 
until his heart is broken over his sin. That's good to remember as you share Christ and as I preach him from this pulpit and as we elders think about how we bring people into the kingdom, not the kingdom, but the church here locally of God. And the people in Ezra's day understood all these things. Back to the book. They understood all these things. They did not come to God glibly saying, boy, God, what a terrible thing it would be if we had to go to hell. And how nice of you, God, to provide an out for us. Thank you. No, they wept bitterly for their sins. They pledged to put away their pagan wives. And whatever sins you and I may be married to, we must do the same. And so I simply ask you, is that how you came to God? And do you continue to come to him in this same way? you have any foreign wives? Anybody? Anybody in this room wed yourself to habits or to people or to lusts that are, after the Old Testament manner, turning your heart away to serve other gods? We all stumble in many ways, don't we? And thus we must all join Ezra's countrymen in repentance toward God. They pledged to put away their foreign wives. What about you? What about me? We must do the same. That's the first thing this morning. Repentance toward God. They pledged to put away their foreign wives. But now notice, secondly, the gospel according to Ezra is not only about repentance toward God, but it's also about faith in God's Lamb. Faith in God's sacrifice. Verse 19, again, they pledged to put away their wives and being guilty, they offered a ram of the flock for their offense. Don't pass over those two important words, being guilty. Note that well. After all the tears that the people had cried, after all their trembling over their sins, after all of Ezra's prayers on their behalf, even after they had pledged to put away their wives, they were still guilty. The tears of repentance, the pledges to do differently, indispensable as they were in their coming back to God, could not erase what they had done. They were still guilty. It's just what we sometimes sing, isn't it? Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Repentance is necessary, but it's not all. Repentance by itself is not the gospel. They repented and they were still guilty. And so what can wash away my sins? Not the tears of repentance, ultimately. Not my pledges, necessary as they are to do better. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of God's ram. And so we read in verse 19, they pledged to put away their wives, and being guilty, they offered a ram of the flock for their offense. Aren't those lovely words at the end? A ram of the flock for their offense. The law of God in which Ezra was so skilled not only told people what was right, but it made provision for them when they had gone wrong. The law of God, which spoke so clearly to the people about their sins, not only brought tears to their eyes, but the law of God also brought a ram to the altar. 
for their offense, to be slain as an atonement for their sins. What a merciful, good, kind God, not only to teach his people how to live, but then to provide forgiveness when they inevitably fail. That's what we call the good news, isn't it? That's what we call the gospel. And once again, we see that Ezra and his contemporaries understood what we understand. Being guilty, they offered a ram of the flock for their offense. Now we should ask ourselves, what kind of ram was this? Ezra seems to mention it almost offhandedly. He simply calls it a ram of the flock. And so we might think that they just went out to the sheep pen and picked up the first animal that they saw standing nearest the gate and brought it back and sacrificed it. But let's remember what we read in chapter 10, verse 3, that when the people came to Ezra asking him to teach them how to rectify this problem, they said very specifically, let it be done according to the law. And the law had something very specific to say about what kind of ram of the flock should be offered in cases like this one. Not just any ram, not just the first one that they found in the sheepfold. Namely, they were to offer a spotless ram. You remember that from the Old Testament? God's people, when they sinned, could bring God a lamb for their offense, a ram for their offense. But they weren't just to bring him any old sheep. They were to bring him one without defect, one with no spots, one with no deformities, one with no wounds, one with no injuries. And so this ram from the flock would have been the best ram, a spotless ram. And let me also tell you from experience that this ram from the flock would have also been a silent ram. You remember the book of Isaiah tells us that sheep ewes, lambs, rams are silent before their shearers and they are also silent, Ezra says, when they're led to slaughter. Some of you who grew up in the country have seen this. Goats, you lead them to slaughter, they wail. Pigs, you lead them to slaughter, they squeal. But a sheep is silent when it's led to slaughter. I saw this, I heard it rather, when we were in Ethiopia. We had a sheep roast, and in Ethiopia, when you have a sheep roast, you don't go buy the sheep from Kroger. You buy the sheep from the farmer, and you slaughter it, and you roast it yourself. And they did this right outside my bedroom window, and it was over before I knew it because that sheep never made a sound. And that's what we have going on here. You can picture the scene in Ezra 10, 19b as they offered a ram of the flock for their offense. It would have been a bloody scene, yes, It would have perhaps been an emotional scene for these people because of the reason this sheep was having to die. But it wouldn't have been a noisy scene. There would have been no commotion. There would have been no bleeding or squealing of the sheep. All would have been silent as this ram spilled its blood for the people's offense, almost like he was willing to die in their place. It's a remarkable scene, could we but be there and see it. Here we have a spotless ram, the best of the flock, silent as it is led to slaughter, silent as the knife hangs above its throat. And those two facts, the spotlessness and the silence of the lamb, remind us also that this was a symbolic ram as well, a picture of something else, a picture of someone else. 
Indeed, that's what all those rams and lambs and goats and bulls were in the Old Testament. They were offered for the, for the people's offenses, not as final atonement for their sins, but simply as reminders of the final atonement that they needed. The author of Hebrews tells us very clearly, the blood of bulls and goats can by no means take away sins. Human sin must be atoned for by human blood, by a human ram, as it were. But until that human ram came the one who could finally take away the sins of the world. God gave Ezra in his mercy. God gave the children of Israel in his mercy rams and goats and bulls and turtle doves and so on as reminders of the sacrifice who was to come. He gave them symbolic sacrifices so that by engaging in them, the Israelites might demonstrate their faith in the blood of the lamb who was to come. So this ram in Ezra 10.19, I say, is a symbolic ram. And what a symbol he is. Look at him there on Ezra's killing stone, all free of spots and blemishes. And you look at him and see his spotlessness and you think of Jesus, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, the ram who is offered for our offenses with no moral spot or blemish at all. He knew no sin, Peter tells us, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. He was tempted, Hebrews tells us, in all things as we are, yet without sin. Just think of that. Think of all the temptations that come across your path. All the opportunities for you to lust. All the opportunities for selfishness. All the opportunities to feel sorry for yourself and forget God. All the opportunities to complain. All the provocations to anger. All the fodder for gossip that comes your way. Jesus was tempted in every single way that you are tempted, and he never once gave in. He never once indulged himself. He never once let his father down. He never once took to himself any sort of foreign wife. He never once gave himself any reason to ever have to weep bitterly with Ezra and us. And because he didn't, he was able to fulfill the law's demand of a spotless sacrifice who knew no sin and could become sin on our behalf that's my Jesus a spotless ram offered for my innumerable offenses is that your Jesus I hope he is now look at Ezra's ram again in verse 19 he's still there lying prone on the table knife poised above his throat And remember that he's not only a spotless lamb, but he is a silent one. He seems as though he's willing to die for the people's offenses. Isn't that a picture of our ram as well? Look at Jesus as he stands before Pilate. He could have argued his case flawlessly. He could have proven himself innocent easily. He could have spoken all of his enemies straight into hell, the way he will do when he comes in his judgment at the last day. But instead, as Isaiah puts it poetically, like a lamb that is led to slaughter, so he did not open his mouth. He wanted to die. Look at him hanging there on the cross. He could have come down from the cross as his tormentors dared him to do. He could have called 10,000 angels to come and vanquish his foes, but he didn't. Like the ram on Ezra's stone table, he laid down his life silently, willingly, for our offenses. That's how much he loves us. 
That's how committed he is to your soul. For 33 years, he was tempted and tried in all things as we are. In fact, in more things than we are. And for the glory of God and the salvation of us spiritual adulterers, he never once gave in. And when the knife was poised above his head, when the temptation was at its height, when his heart was melting like wax within him, when the sweat and the blood were running down into his eyes, when his own father, because of our sins, righteously forsook him to his wrath, he offered no complaints, he did not argue his case, he did not call for the angels, but he held his peace like a ram that has led to slaughter. That's how much he loves us. He was willing To die in our place. This was no ordinary ram of the flock, I said. And this Jesus was no ordinary ram of the flock that died for us that day in the place called the skull either. Have you laid hold of him? Is he yours? Are you his? Have you entrusted yourself to God's ram like Ezra and his countrymen? Being guilty, they offered a ram of the flock for their offense. They did not just presume that God would forgive their sins. They did not just assume that everything would be okay in the end. No, they went out to the sheepfold and they laid hold of the spotless ram. They went back into the scriptures and they laid hold of the remedy that God had prescribed for sinners. Have you done that? Have you laid hold of Jesus? You mustn't simply presume, well, you know, I'm in the church every week, and I'm sure at some point Jesus will be mine, and I'll be his, and everything will be fine in the end. No. You, like the children of Israel, must intentionally lay hold of the ram. Have you done that? Have you deliberately entrusted your soul and your sins to this spotless, silent ram? And if you haven't, will you today? plead with you that you would today. This is your only recourse when you find yourself guilty, like the children of Israel found themselves guilty. Repentance toward God and faith in His ram. They pledged to put away their sins, their foreign wives, and being guilty, they offered a ram of the flock for their offense. And you know, even if you have long since done that, even if you have long since turned to Christ, And from your sin, these twin graces of repentance and faith continue to be your only recourse day by day, don't they? Because you continue to struggle with the sins that so easily entangle you, and so so do I. You continue to stumble in many ways, and so do I. And so you continue to need to repent towards God and to place your faith in His ram, and so do I. This is the ongoing rhythm of the Christian life, is it not? We continually find ourselves putting away our foreign wives, putting away our idols, putting away our sins, and we continually find ourselves laying hold again and again of the ram offered once and for all for our offense. That's why we have the Lord's Supper. That's why we come and hear the gospel week to week, because we continue to need to lay hold of the ram of the flock offered for our offense. And praise God for his generous provision for weak, struggling, needy sinners. They pledged to put away their wives 
And being guilty, they offered a ram of the flock for their offense. 